right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, church. So good to see you. Uh, if we haven't yet met, my name is Paul. I serve as the teaching pastor here. Uh, so, man, I was sitting in the front row, and we were all singing holy, and it was great. I just, like, that was awesome. Um, it's a really, it was like a preview of what we're going to see in the text today in Revelation 4. Um, man, praise God. It was just really, really really good. Um, so before we get into our text today, which is Revelation 4, um, we're going we're gonna to have a little bit of a family meeting. And as I say that, it's like, whoa, that sounds serious. Are we in trouble? Um, not at all. Um, and so here's what I mean by that. Um, recently, a few weeks ago, so we're getting into fall, right? And uh, so my wife and I, we, we get our two boys, they're five and three, and uh, we're like, all right, guys, family meeting time. And they're like, okay, what does that mean? I'm like, I know. And so um, we sit down and we're like, look, school's coming up. You know, our, our five-year-old, he's, he's getting into school and, you know, he wants to do soccer. We're talking about these different activities and fall is busy. We're thinking about life group. And so we needed to sit down as a family and say, Here, here's the thing, guys. We've got a lot coming up and, and we need to communicate to you guys what your expectations are, like what we expect of you and, and what you should expect of, of us, right? And so we go through this meeting and we walk out of the meeting and it was like... Okay, we feel good about this. And I was thinking about this upcoming fall just as, as the church. Um, we are, through faith in Christ, made brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're, we're a family, okay? And if you're a guest this morning and you're thinking, well, I feel really uncomfortable now, just welcome. We're glad to have you, okay? It's okay. Um, and so he, here's what I think we, we need to talk through. Um, over the past couple of weeks, uh, we have sent out emails communicating something coming up for life groups. Brad mentioned life groups. Uh, we have this big sign on the window out here that says where no one walks alone. And that is an ambitious and an aggressive vision for what we want to be as a church. And that's hard to do. But here's the thing. If, if we look at our situation as a church, um, we're like God is doing incredible things. Like we're seeing so much fruit, so much activity, so many good things. Like I'm saying like, holy are you God? Like you're so good. And yet at the same time, I know there's about 40% of us, roughly, if my numbers are somewhat correct, that we're not yet engaged in a life group. And maybe you hear that and say, I thought we weren't in trouble. Okay, not in trouble, okay, really it's probably on, on me. And here's the reason, here's the reason why. Um, so we say, again, we want to be a place where no one walks alone. The way we do that is through life groups. So you get plugged into a life group, you, you know other people, other people know you, you do life together, like it makes a profound difference. But here's the thing. On average, we're like 140-ish on a Sunday. Again, I, the reason I tell you that is what we want our life groups to be is anywhere from 10 to like 14 people. And so what that means, if, if we want everybody to be in a life group, we need somewhere between, and I always make math errors on a Sunday morning, so these are great, um, somewhere between like 10 and, and 12 or 13 groups, right? Mathematicians, check me, just let me know, right? So we need more groups, so that more people can engage in groups. So the problem is we only have like six groups right now. And so what's happening is we don't really have groups to connect people into because we don't have enough groups. And one of our groups in particular is way too big because I haven't multiplied it yet, which is on me. And so what's happening is, is we have this mega group of like 40 people or whatever, and then we've got some other groups. And so all that to say, this fall, in order to try and remedy that, I think of it a little bit like a prevent defense versus an all-out blitz. Like we could do prevent defense as a church, remain status quo, not change anything. Or we could say, no, let's connect everyone. And that's what I want to do, okay? So the way this is going to work this fall, which is different, if you're in my life group, you know who you are. Uh, if you're in um, Rich Klingle or Aaron Newland's life group, you know who you are. Or if you're here and you're not connected to a life group at all, this is for you. 
So on Wednesdays at 6.30, starting on September 20th, I believe that's correct, <laughs> it's a Wednesday, September 20th, we're going to start for, for uh, five or six weeks, um, we're going to do something called Life Group United, where we're going to come as one big old group, and we're going to meet for those, those weeks on Wednesday nights, and then, Lord willing, by the grace of God, as long as we all like, commit to this, again, if you're in other life groups that I didn't mention, stay in your group, fantastic, great. But if you're in those groups, or you're not in a group, commit to this, and what we're praying for is that we can multiply out of that time together five or six new, healthy, thriving life groups, and everybody is engaged, everybody's plugged in, so that we can actually live out this thing on the window that says where no one walks alone, okay? So I just wanted to communicate to you, that's where we are. God's doing awesome things, but we can't let our foot off the gas. I think we need to do a bit of a blitz here in the fall to say, hey, let's connect, let's be the church. So we'll communicate more details about that. If you have more, any questions, please let me know. I just wanted to let you know what the plan is for the fall uh, coming up, and I am looking forward to it. Now, all of that being said, we are continuing on in a series in Revelation today. All right, the series is called New. Um, excuse me, you see that on the screens? The series is called New, and, and the big idea, uh, the main point of this series, something we'll say each and every week, is that the Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar. Okay? And there's many reasons for that. Hopefully we see that play out each and every week in the series. When you look at the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the scriptures, there are a lot of things that there is a lot of debate about. But what is not debatable is that the book of Revelation centers and focuses on Jesus. Jesus' glory, Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. And that is really, really good. And so as we study this book, we want to center our hearts, focus our hearts on who Jesus is. Yes, we're going to look at things that are in the future. We're going to talk about some of these issues of interpretation. But the point is Jesus. Now, slight recap. What we saw back in week one is a vision given to John, the apostle, uh, one of Jesus' closest friends during Jesus' earthly ministry. And um, then from there, Jesus addresses the seven churches, which is really representative of the church as a whole. And we finished that up last week, and we, we talked through the church of Laodicea, which was lukewarm, and we talked about how being lukewarm Christians is not a good thing, and we need to repent of that and take some really great steps. And I, I think we did. And that was awesome to see last week. And so this week, we're now moving into a new section of the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to engage in the text and ask God's help for that first. Uh, Father, um, I'm grateful that you're with us. Jesus, I'm grateful that you stand in our midst. You hold us in your hands. You do both of those simultaneously. But you're within us. You send your spirit to dwell within us. God, as we open your word, would you open it to us? Would you make it understandable? Would you make it transformative? Would you give it the power that it has? Would you make that alive in us? We need you. We trust you. We come to you in Jesus' name, asking these things, Father. Amen. All right, Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So twice we get this phrase, after this, and again, that, the first one clearly refers to after Jesus has addressed these seven churches. And the voice that John is hearing, the voice of the one that sounds like a trumpet, well, that's Jesus, and we know that from Revelation chapter 1. And Jesus is saying to John, come up here. And what John looks up, I imagine he sees like a beautiful cumulonimbus cloud with a door cut in the middle. I don't know, we've seen that Photoshop somewhere probably. 
He says, look, there's a door open to heaven. Come up here. Like, what an invite. Right? Can, like, that, that's, that's pretty stunning. And so what we're about to read is, is this incredible vision of what happens in heaven. But I think this, this brings up a couple of important points right off the bat. Number one, heaven is, ex- is, is simultaneously inclusive and exclusive. Heaven is simultaneously inclusive and exclusive. And, and first, the inclusivity of heaven. Notice, again, that, that there's this invitation from Jesus. Hey, come on up. Like, come up here. And, and church, you and I, we have all received that invitation from Jesus. Hey, come up here. I want to, to see you. I want to be with you. And the reality is that no matter how broken, no matter how flawed, no matter how sinful we are, God still gives us that invitation. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ, when he came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am a chief. The Apostle Paul saying, I am a chief sinner, and yet I have received this invitation to, to be with him, to be united with Christ, to come to heaven. And every single one of us, no matter how broken, no matter how flawed, no matter how dead in our sin we are, we have received this invitation from Christ. It is inclusive. And yet, simultaneously, heaven is exclusive. Heaven is exclusively, exclusively for those who belong to Jesus. Because again, remember who this invitation comes from, directly from Jesus. And there's some really, really significant, really, really important implications of that. Only Jesus has the authority, only Jesus has the identity to bring someone into heaven. Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here's why this is really, really big deal, because sometimes what we believe is in a good person's salvation. We say, well, there, there are good people. According to the world standards, they, they, they help people. They're very kind. They're very nice. They're good people. But here's the thing. Good people don't go to heaven. Only people who belong to Jesus go to heaven. Because only Jesus gives us righteousness to be in the presence of God and not be incinerated. Do you see that? And again, that is a hard thing, I think, for us to to rationalize and come to terms with because it sounds and it seems so strict. But church, the reality is no one comes to the Father except through Christ. Inclusive and exclusive. Jesus is the only way. And, and church, let that motivate us into evangelism. What Brad was talking about this morning, if we see and believe, not in the good person gospel, but in the dead sinner in need of, a salvation, in need of salvation gospel, the true gospel, I think we'll be motivated into, into evangelism. So that, that's point one. Now, what happens He goes up into heaven, and we see this in verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. All right, so I think the first logical question is, well, who is seated on the throne? And we might naturally think, well, of course Jesus is seated on the throne. You said over and over again, Paul, how the book of Revelation is about Jesus, and that is a natural right thought. But here's the thing. Earlier, Jesus was described, do do you recall, and he's described differently in a couple different ways throughout this book, but earlier he was described with white hair and 
fiery eyes and, and burnished bronze feet, right? And actually what we're going to see in the next chapter is that Jesus actually approaches the throne. What we're also going to see a little bit later in this chapter is that the Holy Spirit is before the throne. And so that leaves the only logical conclusion here, church, is that seated on this particular throne is God the Father. Yeah. This is God the Father in his glory in heaven, seated on the ultimate throne. And John gets an invitation to waltz right up in there, which speaks to the access to God that you and I have through faith in Christ. Throughout the entire Old Testament, if you look at the tabernacle, you go into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, you go into these Old Testament books, you see it was all about teaching the people how they can relate to the presence of God. Very strict, very specific, very, very clear. And if people went outside of those boundaries, death. Because God is holy. He is holy. He is holy. And so the only way then John can access this holy God the Father, again, is through Jesus' imitation. It's all about Jesus, right? We see the glory of the Father. So we see that first. And I will say, okay, well, you might say, well, we say all the time, well, Jesus is seated on his throne, he's ruling, he's reigning. And that's true, church. Remember earlier it said, hey, after this, and there's a lot of debate on what that after this means. You could go about 42 different ways, but this seems to indicate something in the future, a future vision. See, right now in the present church age, Ephesians 1.20, the Apostle Paul talking about God the Father says that he um, worked in Christ after he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Right? So right now, Jesus is seated on a throne of authority. He has authority. He's seated. He's in control. Remember, he stands in our midst, as we saw in Revelation 1. There's this future reality, it would seem. God is on his throne. Jesus is there. John gets the invite. All right? Now, what is happening around this throne? We get to verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. That's a, a reference to the Holy Spirit, by the way. And before the throne, were the, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is heaven. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, there's a lot in here to dissect. There's a lot in here to discuss. I'm going to hit the, the easy stuff first, and then we'll get to the stuff that I think we could debate on, okay? So here's the easy stuff, all right? Back in, in uh, the last verse we, we just read, what are these, these angelic creatures saying? They're singing we just did. There's a reason we sing in church. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And here, church, we get these foundational, fundamental elements of, of the gospel. 
right? In order to understand the gospel, we first have to understand that God is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, to be holy is to be set apart, to be distinguished. And again, we talked through this just briefly a few minutes ago. Israel, the, the Jewish people, they would have had the holiness of God engraved into their minds through the ceremonial and ritual practices of the Old Testament. Again, they would have understand that you can't just waltz up to God on your own. They would, understand, they would have understood you can't just be in the presence of God on your own. We're sinful. Sin and holiness cannot mix. It's like oil and water. And so here we see these angels declaring truths about God, holy, holy, holy. And what we also see is this reminder that God is, was, and is to come. What that means is that God is forever. And what that should remind us of, church, is that we are not. It should remind us that we are finite, that we are limited, and that we are in need of a Savior. And so when we realize we're finite, we realize we're limited, we see then God who is forever, that should awaken in us and arouse in us this, this concept to say, I need to, to be forever. There's this longing for eternity within us. How do I do that? Holy, holy, holy. We get our holiness and our righteousness from God. God the Son, Christ Jesus. And so in this, we have this clear proclamation of the gospel, in a sense, continually and constantly before the throne of God in these angelic figures that are, quite frankly, stunning. And I think it's important to remember that John is doing the best he absolutely can to describe what it is he's seeing. The descriptions, there's not the words to describe what he's seeing. Remember how he described God the Father, like these two beautiful, precious stones, this like radiating brilliance of light. It's the closest thing he could even think of to, to see what it is he's seeing. He sees this incredible rainbow, which is representative of, of God's covenant, right, to never destroy the earth again. He sees all of these things, and it's just almost too incredible for words. I want to jump back to verse 4. Okay, jump back to verse 4. The text says this, around the thrones were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, this is the part of the text that gets a little bit more difficult to interpret. Um, I read one commentator say there are 13 different ways you could land here, which just makes me angry, frankly. Like, why? Can you guys not just agree on something? Um, people I respect um, on both sides would say, here's exactly what this means. And on the other side, once again, sorry, I'm using the stage as a spectrum. I just can't help myself. They say, no, this is what this means. And so here's what I would say. If both of those camps are believers in Christ, faithful believers in Christ, what I would say is that we need to not get caught up in saying, no, this is the exact right way to interpret this. We need to get the point. We need to understand the principles at play. But we need to see the overall point of this chapter is God the Father, his holiness, and worship of the Father. Okay? That being said, I do want to, to walk us through a couple of the different interpretations. So some would say that these 24 elders seated on the throne, these are angels. Again, some would say that. That's a minority view. And I think there's a reason that's a minority view, because nowhere else in, in Scripture uh, are angels um, presented in this way. Nowhere else are really angels seated on thrones. They don't have crowns. And so while some hold to that view, and again, this is a non-salvific issue, to use that term, 
I don't know that that's what I would land on. If you land on there, you're a believer. Great, praise God. Um, The other view, one of the other views, is that these 24, they represent the 12 uh, tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. And so together you get sort of this body of believers, which is great. That's, That's really good. And I think a lot of people land in this camp, and I think that is reasonable and fair. And if you were to land in that camp, I would say, okay, the point is these 24 elders are representative of believers. There is one particular issue, I think, with that is elsewhere in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the 12 apostles judging uh, the tribes of Israel. And so are they then simultaneously together? Again, I'm not real sure, but you could land on that. The last one, which is frankly where I land, I'll just tell you, this is where I land, and we can have a conversation later, that's fine, is that these 24 elders are representative of of church-age believers. Okay, let me tell you why I land there. If you go back into the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 4, what you see, which is this is the Old Testament, is that David, and sorry, we're getting a little nerdy here, but that's all right, family meeting, right? It's okay. David, uh, he's the king, and he has all these priests. And what David does is to organize them, he divides them into 24 different categories or different sects, if you will, of priests. And so then, later in the New Testament, what we see is that you and I, see, we are actually called priests and and kings, right? And so what we see is this sort of the representation of a totality, if you will, of the priesthood, worshiping God before the throne. And again, I I think that seems to make sense, but again, maybe not. Uh, Revelation 3.21 says, um, as as we look at these different things that these uh, elders have, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so that seems to make sense as he's addressing these churches, right? There, there's this clear concept of, of throne and that we're going to be seated on the throne. There's a, another verse we'll reference here. Um, Ephesians 2.6, it says, uh, the Apostle Paul saying, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so once again, it seems to give this idea of New Testament context, church believers seated on thrones. Okay, does that... Make sense? And again, going to align differently. So now, whether they're New Testament believers or a combination of Old and New Testament believers, the point is the same, really, ultimately. Look at verse 9. What are they doing? What are they doing? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, which is happening constantly, by the way, the 24 elders representative of believers, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So in response to the angel or to these angelic creatures singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The 24 elders hear that. Believers, again, representative of believers, hear that, see that. And what do they do? They worship. They worship in response to who God is. And I think that brings up a really, really important point for us to dig in in the rest of our time today. It's already 1046, my goodness. And, and really ask this, this first question, what is worship? What is worship? And that sounds like a very simple, very basic question. It's like, well, it's worship. 
but I think it's, it's a little bit more than it might seem. Because if I, if I were to ask you, what is worship? I would imagine we would all say something just a little bit different. I want to give you a, a theologian, a guy named John Frame, uh, whom I love, a very, very wise, intelligent man. He gives this definition of worship. He says, in one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. And when we meet together as a church, our time of worship is not merely a preliminary to something else. Rather, it is the whole point of our existence as the body of Christ. I wouldn't have come up with that definition. That's why God made guys like John Frame. He's very smart. Uh, Louis Giglio. Maybe you guys know Louis Giglio. He started something called the Passion Movement, which over the past 20 plus years has gathered hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions, and I'm not exaggerating that, of young people to worship God. And his entire heart is to say, we need a heart of worship. And he's trying to engrave that in the hearts and the minds of young people. Giglio says this, worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Here's what I want us to see primarily when we put both of these things together. Worship is total. It's comprehensive. Sometimes we think of what's worship? Well, I come to Sunday and we worship for the first 15 or so minutes and then we worship at the end. That's a, that's a sliver of what worship actually is. Actually, what we're doing right now, studying God's word, that's worship. It is a, an exalting and honoring of who God is. And so what that means is worship should be a part of every single aspect of your life. And that's a challenge. Because to worship is to acknowledge, and again, to give honor to the one who deserves it. Who is the one who deserves it? God. Holy, holy, holy. Right? And so this is then a real challenge. I thought worship was just coming here on a Sunday for a few minutes, but you're telling me worship is every single minute of my entire life? Yeah. And so then the question is, well, what does that look like? How in the world do I even do that? And I think that then begs the question, what does worship involve? And I think we get our answer, as we always do, which is so just awesome, because God's word is great. We think we get our answers from the word of God. All right? We get our answers from the word of God. Because notice, what do the elders do? Let's look at their actions. Let's look at their activity. Again, going to, to verse 9. I'm not going to have this on the screens. And it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and then they sing their song. And so here's what I want us to see. Notice... Notice, number one, that, that initially we were, we were introduced to the elders, and we were introduced to them um, in this way. It says, around the throne were 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were 24, excuse me, around the throne were 24 thrones, seated on the thrones were 24 elders. The first time we see them, they're sitting on thrones. The next time they, we see them, they're off of their throne. They've fallen down in worship. Do you see that? And so here's the point. True worship involves removing ourselves from the throne of our life. True worship 
means I am actually not the one in control. I'm actually not the one who calls the shots. And I think in our culture and in our current day context, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around this throne language because as Americans, we don't like anything to do with thrones, right? We literally have a revolution to try and ignore the throne, right? And it was successful, crushed it, right? But here's the thing. We've actually reframed how we say thrones. We call them seats. <laughs> now, there's 435 seats in the House of Representatives. Guess what? Those 435 people have authority. We say there's 100 seats in the Senate. Guess what? Those 100 seats, those people sitting in those seats, those thrones, have authority. You see, it's actually impossible for humankind to exist without the concept of a throne because someone or something has to be at the center of our decision-making, our processing, how it is we view the world. And so the question really this morning for all of us is, is not, do you have a throne? The question is, what or who or whom is seated upon the throne? That's the question. It's not, do you have a throne? It's who or what is seated, is seated on the throne? How do I figure that out? Well, if worship is total and complete, then you need to ask yourself, as I'm going to work, who's seated on the throne in my life? As I'm talking to my spouse, who's seated on the throne? As I'm going to school, students, who's seated on the throne? As you're doing your budget, who's seated on the throne? As you're going about your leisure activities, who's seated on the throne? As you go grocery shopping, who's seated on the throne? You say, grocery shopping? Really? Yeah. I mean it. We are a temple of the living God. We should care for that, right? Who's seated on the throne? I'm very guilty of that. It's very convicting to me this week. I hate when that happens, but it happens every week, all right? So everything, what music I listen to? Yeah. Who's seated on the throne? What I watch? Yeah. Your Netflix shows? Who? <laughs> I could go on and on and on and on, but you get the point. Everything needs to be processed through this lens of my glory or God's glory. Because the purpose is to remove ourselves from the throne, bow down before God and say, you are worthy, you alone are worthy. Not me. So, I think that's number one. Who's seated on your throne? How can God be the primary one on your throne? Secondly is this. True worship involves acknowledging to God that our righteousness is not our own. And again, we get this from the text. What do they do? And I know we've read it three times. You've all got it memorized, but just for my own sake, what do they do? They fall down before him who is seated on the throne, worship him who lives forever, and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, worthy are you, our Lord and God. These crowns, again, there's a lot of differing ways we can interpret these crowns, but consistently throughout the New Testament, we're told that we're given this crown of righteousness. We're given this honor, like we're going to get to heaven and we're like, hey, hey, and Jesus is going to be like, God, you did it, man. I'm so happy for you guys. Like, here's the crown of righteousness. And we get to wear it and it's like, wow, that's stunning. And then there's also, crowns are sometimes described as like, as rewards for good works that we've done. Like if we're really faithful, we, we, we try and honor the Lord God. It's, it's not out of a so that we will be saved, but if we honor God because we are saved and we do all these good works, we're given these different rewards. But here's the thing. You would think when you're in heaven, you're like, this crown is my symbol that I belong here. Right? If I've got this crown on my head, that means I can approach the throne of grace with confidence because I've got the crown. But what do the elders do? They take off their crowns and they give them to God. 
And what does that mean? It means they are saying to God, my righteousness is not on me. My good works are not because anything that I have done, everything I am, all, all, that I, all of my being, my very presence here is for you and only because of you. And so anything good that I have, any blessing that I have, any presence in the kingdom of God, I'm going to take that crown and say, that is only because of your grace and your mercy, God. It's it. And what that does is it roots out of us self-righteousness. It roots out of us pride. It roots out of us arrogance. It roots out of us apathy to say, no, everything that I am belongs to you. And here's the really, really amazing thing, is that we get to practice that today. There's this tension in the Christian life of already and not yet. You've heard that phrase before. Already, Jesus has defeated death. Already, Satan has ultimately been defeated. Already, you and I, we've been made into new creations in Christ. Already, all of that is true, and yet... We still live in the midst of a broken, sinful world, and yet we still have tears, and yet we still have pain, and yet we still have hardship, and yet we still sin, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. And so what we can do is we can live in the already promises that one day we're going to lay down our, cro- our crowns, our, our everything before God, that one day this is going to be, be us in heaven. Again, these representative of believers in these white robes. And yet... We can live that out today by removing ourselves from our thrones and by laying down our crowns before God. I'm reminded of the story of the thief on the cross. A guy named Alistair Begg says this beautifully. He does it so well, and I won't do it justice. Look it up on YouTube. Um, maybe one of the only times I'll say that. But uh, he, he, he goes and, and he tells the story about the thief on the cross, and, and Jesus is being crucified. And this thief, they're, they're mocking him. And then this one thief looks at him and, and essentially has this repentant heart. And he's like, man, why don't you save yourself? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so then the, the thief on the cross, he dies, right? Um, and so you have to imagine then, this, this brother's never been to church. He's never taken communion. He's never done any of the things. And then when he gets to heaven, they're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? I, I mean, I was, I, was on a, I was crucified, and I talked to this guy, and he said I could come. What do you mean he said you could come? I, I mean, I literally don't know. why. I, I, don't, I don't know who you are. I don't know any of this. Why are you here? Because he said I could come. <laughs> and isn't that us and Jesus? He said we could come into heaven. So who we are, what we are, is all because of what God has done for us through Christ. Amen. Right? All of it. So we lay our crowns down and we worship God. Lastly, true worship involves praising God for who he is. And we see that last part in this song. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We worship God by acknowledging who God is. And we say that to God. And when we come together and we sing on Sunday morning, that's what we're doing. We're acknowledging and we're worshiping God for who he is. We're singing truths about God. And that is right and good worship. But it's total. It's complete. It's not just a moment on Sunday. 
Church, let's just close in prayer together to worship God. All right, let's pray. Father, you're good and you're faithful. We love you and we trust you. We thank you, God, that we get to approach the throne of grace with confidence, Jesus, because of who you are. God, would you make us, by the power of your spirit, people who understand that worship is total, worship is complete, worship is everything in our lives. We have an opportunity to worship you, God. And maybe the step one for us this morning is to say, I need to place my faith in Jesus. I need to trust Jesus with my life. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you to take that step this morning to say, I place my faith in Jesus. I want this life that you're talking about. Maybe for some of us, it's to say, I need to remove myself off of the throne of my life. I am not in control. I'm not. And I repent of being in control, Father. Forgive me. I want to process everything in my life through the lens of who Jesus has made me to be and the blessings that I have in him. Wherever we are this morning, I want to pray that we would take a step, a commitment to God to say, here I am, God. Here is my sin. Here is my wickedness. Here is my wayward heart. Take it. Transform me. Continue to make me and conform me into the image of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.